Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Welcome this morning. This is our uh, second Sunday in the season of Advent. Uh, and we are talking about the light of the world, the light of the world. I love the variation on Silent Night in that uh, video. One of my favorite Christmas carols. Uh, how many of you love that one? Silent Night. That's, 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 that is a favorite. It, uh, so many people have a, a favorite Christmas carol. Right? Are you that way? You, you ha- everybody loves, you know, singing Christmas carols, but, uh, but we, hear, we hear that one, and that's, that's the one that just really, really speaks to us. What's some of your favorites out there? Somebody yell one out. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. Oh, we've got a few of those. Yeah? Anybody else? Oh, Holy Night. That's a good one. What's the right one? The French one? The Grinch. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> they, they seem to fall into two categories, right? There's like the big celebration ones, like the joy to the world, right? And there's the sort of soft, magical ones, like Silent Night. And, uh, how, about, how, about, how about this one? I'll be home for Christmas. Anybody love that one? I always love that one. It's, that's one of those carols to me that really captures Christmas, right? Because it's... Uh, it, it blends all the good, warm memories and, and the promise of home. But also that last line just gets you, right? If only in, oh, in my dreams, come on, right? It gets you in the jugular. Oh, it's, it, and it's, you know, it's very Christmas. That's, that's the reality of Christmas. It's like the beauty and the magic and the, the, all that stuff, plus that sort of heartbreak that Christmas doesn't always, isn't always the, the fairy tale for everybody, right? It's, sometimes it's only in our dreams. Um, but I think one of the things that I love about that, I know what I love about that song and what makes it so powerful, uh, especially when, when Bing's singing it, right? It's got to be Bing, uh, is, uh, is even in the title of that song, that song, it acknowledges the power of the word home, right? I will be home for Christmas, right? Some about it, it just, it, it wouldn't have had the, the same tug on the heart if it had been, I'll be at work for Christmas, right? <laughs> just wouldn't have made it as quite as popular. There, there's very few words in the English language that evoke as much emotion uh, for us and imagination as that word home, home, just four simple letters, but boy, it means a lot to different people. And it's different for different people, right? Uh, If you say the word home to somebody who had a happy childhood, you know, maybe they had, you know, great parents and reasonably sane siblings. um, Well, you know, you probably better have some time on your hands because they're going to tell you some great, crazy stories about being home and growing up and heartwarming events. I got a friend who's like this. They tell about home, and they think everybody's home should have been the way his home was, right? And they, they never stop talking about it. On the other hand, if you say the word home to someone who didn't have a happy childhood, right? Maybe they, they experienced abuse when they were growing up, neglect in their home. You say that word home, and you better brace yourself. You say that word home to a person who maybe has always wanted to have a, have a spouse and a family, but it's just never worked out. Uh, be prepared to hear a story of dashed dreams, right? The truth is, whether we had a, 
a happy home or an unhappy home growing up. I think all of us know deep down what a home could be, what a home ought to be, like what that ideal home feels like. We know that in our hearts, every person in this place understands the potential that lives inside that word home. I think God made sure of it. I think he imprinted it on our hearts, right? (laughs) However you grew up, there's something in your heart you know what home ought to be like. And for some of us, if we don't have, if we didn't experience that home, or maybe we're not experiencing that home now in, in a biological sense, for some of us, that's what our faith community has become, right? Our church becomes that home for us. Because home is where you have a deep sense of belonging. Home is where you have that rootedness. You're safe and you're protected from the world. Home is where you're supposed to be loved, like, irrationally and unconditionally, uh, forgiven of all your wrongs. That's what home means. Uh, where, where, you know, you confess and you admit the things you've done and you're just accepted. You're not judged. Home is where you know for dead sure that everybody in that home is for you. In every circumstance of life, they're for you. That's home. We all long for that. These are, these are powerful human yearnings, and they exist in all of us without exception. God hardwired us that way. When I was growing up, there was a little advertisement for a company that would uh, provide a little bit of home uh, for you. If you were away from your home, the owner promised to leave the light on for you, right? We remember that. Good old Motel 6. They'll leave the light on for you. Home is the place where they leave the light on for you, no matter what. No matter what faraway place you've been traveling, that's home. And so when we're talking about Christmas, we hear you are in the season of Advent, getting close to Christmas. Christmas and home really go hand in hand because home, when you think about it, is at the heart of the story of Christmas. <clears throat> Christmas is when, when human beings, we celebrate welcoming the God of the universe into our home, our earthly home. While from God's perspective, in reality, Christmas is about when the God of the universe came across the universe so that we could ultimately be welcomed into his home. And that's the good news. Last Christmas, my little family got to welcome a beautiful little girl into our home for the first time, a little four-year-old at the time, to be part of our family. And, and this Christmas, we're celebrating one year with that beautiful little girl, completely, miraculously transforming all of us, blessing all of us much more than I think she has been blessed. We've, we're the ones that have been blessed. And so this is a fun Christmas for us in the Hale House. And Advent is, is the perfect time for us to I think it's for us to look at a story in the Bible where we're reminded of the God who calls home the homeless and who adopts the fatherless. Even, when, even if we push him away at first, this is the God who just doesn't quit. And, and this God is the one who, who never gives up on us. He's never about to give up on us. So the story I want to look at this morning, it's one Admittedly, it's told by Jesus, but I have to admit it's, it's one that's probably rarely, if ever, associated with Christmas. 
The story doesn't have any manger. There's no shepherds. There's no magi. There's no angels in the sky. There's no star. There's no bloodthirsty king. Uh, the, the, all the elements that, that make a normal Christmas story, but what makes this story so powerful is that it's about a father who is watching hopefully down the road for his wayward son to come home. And it's the parable, of course, of the, of the prodigal son. It's found in, chap, in Luke chapter 15. You can go there if you like and follow along. Luke chapter 15. And it starts in verse 11. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And by the way, all the characters in this story are, are male, uh, but that, that's more of a, a culturalism. The two sons, this is for all of us today, men, women, all of us together. Um, a, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, and the father in this story, of course, represents God. And the, what we get here is, is the father, God, with the mother's heart. This is such a beautiful story. He said, the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my, my share of the inheritance. Give me my share of the inheritance. This act of, of the younger son right here, it would have just been unimaginable in this culture. It was such a slap in the face for the son to say, Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die to get my stuff. I want it now. It was, it was a horrible thing. It would have been just shocking to the ears of the people listening to Jesus. Uh, the, this boy is saying, I want what, I, what I'm getting now, and you're keeping me from the good life, right? You being alive is keeping me from the good life. It's the Jewish equivalent, it truly is, of telling his father, I wish you were dead. And the father in this story would have every right to be infuriated, to just throw him out, disown him, even stone him, just, but that's not how he responds. It says, the father divided his estate between them. The word that, get this, the word that Jesus uses for estate, and it might be a different word in your translations, inheritance or whatever it is, the word is actually bios. It's the word meaning life. He divided his life, literally his existence. The father divided his life to meet the demands of this son. And soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. Now, if there were an actual story, this would have taken some time. There would have been some time and space in between the son asking for the inheritance and the father giving it. This, this would have been a, a complicated process, right? The father couldn't just go down to Wells Fargo and cash a, get a cashier's check, right, and hand, hand the son. Why? Because that's not the way wealth was in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, wealth was land. It was land. It was all the animals. It was everything they had built for generations. Land that had probably been passed down in this family for generations. So in order to meet this son's demands, a father would have to tear his life apart, everything he had built. He would have to sell off land that he had been connected to, land that probably belonged to his father and his father before him, and he would have to sell off all the flocks that they had developed all this time to take his estate and break it apart in order to give some to his son. And in the story, he does just that. And the son kicks out the back door with the cashier's check in his hand, and he's convinced that life out there 
is better than life at home. And that's where we, we head to the next. It says, there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, Jesus is a great storyteller here because in the age that he's telling the story here, oh man, a famine would mean even worse for them than it does to us. I mean, a famine is bad enough today, you know, third world, it's, it's devastating. But to us in America, a famine means prices at the grocery store are a little higher now, right? The avocados are like a little smaller and less pretty. That's what, you know, fa- we think famine. In Jesus' day, famine means disaster and death, certain death. It, you know, there's no imported food, there's no Red Cross, there's no UN refuge relief, coming in to save the day. There's only do whatever desperate thing you have to do to survive until tomorrow or die. That's what famine means. So, so the boy in the story, he finds himself with no options. And so, so what does he do? It says he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. There's another signal from Jesus that he's gone to a far land. There's no pig farmers in Israel, right? Not kosher. <laughs> so he's in a far land where there, are, where there are pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything, right? Even the pigs are, are not being very generous to him. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. So he has gotten to the I mean, the, his, the end of his rope here. And we might ask, what is taking him so long? Why would he wait so long? I mean, if this were me, why, you know, I'd, I'd be turning around, heading back home around the time I had the last 20 in my pocket, you know, enough to get me home, that bus ticket or whatever it cost. Why does he wait so long? Well, here again, if you're a listener in Jesus' day and you're listening to this story, you would know why is he waiting so long? Because something about Hebrew culture that we need to know if a son had done this thing that the younger son had done to the father, taken his inheritance, headed off to another land, it would be kind of like a scene from The Godfather, right? The father would have been like, you're dead to me. That would have been it. There's no going home. That son would have been forgotten. He would have been cut off. And if that son were to take the wealth that were part of that estate, and especially if he were going to go waste it in a foreign land, He's wasting it, you know, among Gentile people. And when that son tried to come home, he would be faced with a very particular gathering. There was a, there was a, a, a Jewish ceremony called the ceremony of Kazazah, Kazazah. And what would have happened is that son, when he had gotten about, when he had gotten home, when he walked through the gates of that little village, the whole community would have gathered in front of the son and in front of the father. It was a very visual community, you know, these visual ceremonies. And the father would take a pot, a big clay pot in front of the whole community. And he would take this pot and he would smash it on the ground. He would smash it on the ground. And I, I thought about bringing a pot and smashing it on the ground, but then I thought about the cleanup. And, and I just thought, I'll mime it for you. Right? That's not much for visuals. And what the father would do, would pick up 
the pieces from this pot in this ceremony of Kezazah. He would pick up the pieces of the broken pot to symbolize, son, you have broken our community. You've broken our estate. You've broken our home. You've broken our traditions, our family, and you have broken my heart. And there is no putting it back together again. You are cut off forever. That's what the son would be expecting to experience if he ever came home. So it makes sense. We can understand why the son waited to the very last possible moment for, for him to come home as a last resort. And when he finally decides, it says he came to his senses, he gets desperate. He kind of comes up with a business plan, a way to hedge his bets, sort of dodge the ceremony maybe and that's, that he knows is coming, to, a way to earn his way back into the home. And he says... He says, I will get up and go to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Just take me on as one of your hired hands. He knows the son, sonship is gone. That's a lost cause. But maybe he could just get hired on. Have you ever felt like this younger son? Have you ever felt like there's no way you could possibly be forgiven? what you've done. There's no way you could possibly be given, but maybe just, maybe you could earn your way back in. Maybe you could earn your way. Believe me, I know that kind of shame. I, I don't deserve forgiveness, but maybe, maybe I could just earn my way back in. And the first thing I hope we walk away from here today knowing is that no matter how far you have been, what distant country you've been to, that there is a father who loves his children and he just wants them to come home. And if that's you today, there's nothing you can do to earn your way back in. So just set aside the business plan. There's nothing you can do. You don't have to clean up to come home. In fact, you probably need to come home so the father can help clean you up. That doesn't even happen until we come back home. And then the next scene is the most famous one in the story. Most of you are familiar with it. The son starts for home. The father sees him coming, and he runs out to embrace him. All the little clues in this story, Jesus is ramping up the, the, just how amazing this story is. The father running, it's something that a, a dignified, you know, respected man of the village would never do. He had to pick up his, his cloak and run you know, out in the dirt like that. And it says that he fell on it. The Greek word here, it means that he fell on his neck and smothered him with kisses. Kissing his boy, who's covered in mud, smells like pigs. Now, one of the things that we need to know, by the way, this is not a typical Jewish father's display of affection. Because the picture Jesus is, is painting here is of a father God with a mother's heart. This is, this is the way a mama runs out and grabs her son, right? His son is filthy, unkosher for sure, and has committed a sin against all of society. And for dad, all the rules go out the window, right? By rights, the whole community ought to be like, oh, well, we need to, you know, judge and chastise this, this young man. And dad's like, all the rules are out the window, boy's home. Now, I want us to turn our attention to the other character in the story. And you know who it is if, if you're following along. Because if you remember, Jesus dropped a, a little detail in the beginning that there were two sons in the story. 
And what's interesting is it looks at first like one of them is more lost than the other, but it's not really the case. Because by the time we get to verse 25, the father is throwing this giant party for the son who's returned. And it says, now his older son was in the field coming Coming, uh, was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. His father came out and begged him. Now, when we usually tell this story, when I tell this, read this story, I think, you know, we typically like to rag on the older brother, right? How dare he? What a terrible, terrible guy. I have to say, I understand the older brother. And and sadly, I think there's a lot more older brothers in the church than younger brothers sometimes. Uh, I've been the, yes, I've been the idiot younger son, wasted my life, shamed my family, rebelled, you know, looked for attention, always looking out there for fulfillment, for answers, what's out there, what's out there. But I've also been the judgmental older brother, the one who looks down on others who acted foolishly. How dare they act that way? The one who feels should, should get a little something extra for doing things the right way, right? Following the rules, doing things right. The truth is, I, I've been an awful combination of these, these two these two boys, just depends on the day, right? You could pretty much talk to me in any day and say, Scott, what are you struggling with today? Your older brother or, you, or the younger brother? And I was like, oh, man. The truth is a lot of us, I, th- I think, can relate to both of these characters. There's, there's the ones of us who, who always do the right thing, and they always follow the rules and always work really hard. And the interesting thing is, have you ever noticed, it's kind of a quick, it's a real quick transition. Lots of younger brothers who come home, boy, it doesn't take us very long to turn from younger brothers into older brothers. Because younger brothers, there's two different ways you, you react to God's grace. And this is common for all of us. There's two ways to respond. Younger brothers will either become more like the father because of the grace they've been shown, or they'll become more like the older brother. Because what happens is you start telling yourself, you know, maybe I didn't require that much grace. Maybe what I did wasn't that bad. Maybe that wasn't as as big a deal. Maybe I wasn't that bad a person to begin with. Ever happened to you? Kind of some revisionist history in our own life. For for me, it doesn't take much. I got to say, I I can show generosity one time. I'll show up to Rayford Hope one time, (laughs) right? Man. I was good today, right? We show up once, or maybe I consistently pray for seven days in a row, man, and suddenly older brother mentality comes flooding in, and I can't believe these other people who aren't as generous as me, right? Like, you haven't prayed today? I've been praying all week. I didn't pray last week, but this week, man. Older brother, it comes fast, In this story, the younger brother, he's traveled to distant countries. He's been all over, but now he's home. And now the older brother, who has never left, is now 20 feet from the celebration, but he's 100 miles away. He's the one who's gone. And instead of a community gathering, you know, to rebuke the younger brother as he deserved, 
the father is now, in the eyes of the older brother, the father's now the one whose actions are scandalous. And the older brother is furious. And so the father, who's already run out to rescue and bring home the son who's home, now he's losing the other son. And so the father once again shows us the path of humility. And he walks out on the porch to talk to his son. In fact, it says he begs him. Respectable dads don't beg. They don't beg their children, but this father does. Because the father loves his boys. He loves them both. In verse 29, he answered, the older boy answered his father. He said, look, I've served you. Even that word look, it was a disrespectful word in the Hebrew. Look, I have served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Yeah, I never got a young goat. What's going on there? (laughs) All right. (laughs) I never had a goat. That's what me and my buds always wanted. (laughs) But when this son of yours... I like how it's this son of yours. He's not even acknowledging he's related anymore. When he returns, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Some, someone once said, who's, who's the most unhappy character in this story? And someone raised their hand and said, the fattened calf. <laughs> and the father returns to him and says, son, you are with me always. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice what he did? This brother of yours, he's reminding him, he's your brother. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then, what happens? Don't you want to know what happens next? Right? What happens if this was a movie, the music's swelling, right? Camera pans in, the dad's got tears in his eyes, the brother's on the edge of a fateful decision, and Jesus goes, and there was this woman I met one time who lost a pearl. It was a, <laughs> we're like, wait, are you serious? What's happening? Come on, man. Jesus stops the story. That's it. Because what's in reality, this is a choose-your-own-adventure story. This is one of those choose-your-own-adventure. The story ends, how it ends is up to you. Someone has to finish the story. It's up to you and me. Because actually, this story is still being played out every single day. Every day in the lives of every single one of us. Those of us who are full of ourselves and full of pride, we have to make the same decision that Jesus is asking those Pharisees to make. That's who, predominantly who he's telling the story to. There's some Pharisees and leaders who he's telling this to. And he's asking us to make the same decision. There's a celebration going on in the house of God. The younger sons and daughters are coming home. What will you do, older sibling? That's who the story is really to. He's talking to a bunch of older siblings. He's talking to us. So I thought about two ways this story could end. Either the first way is the elder son rejects the words. He turns away from the father. He goes back out into the field. 
And it's, it's heartbreaking. He continues to work, but it's in coldness. He's got a bitter heart, and he never goes into the house again as long as he lives. He follows the rules. He toes the line. He probably even gets his share of the money someday, but he'll never feel at home. That spirit of resentment and bitterness, judgment, it just blinds him. And, and that resentment grows a little stronger and a little darker each year. And he grows to hate his brother. And over time, he even grows to hate his father. And he dies angry and bitter and alone. And he never has a home with the father. And it's not because of the father, it's because of the choice he makes. That's a tragedy. Or maybe the story ends like this. They're looking at each other. And in that moment when the music's swelling, the older brother falls to his knees and he, his, his hard heart is broken and he begs the father for forgiveness and he weeps. And he asks the father to forgive him and take him back again. And he goes into the house, right? And there he sees the skinny, wasted figure of his brother who's been in a famine for a long time. And he, he remembers in that moment how they grew up. He remembers growing up and how they played together and they fought together and they, they played and they worked and they loved each other. And he remembers how his brother was gone and lost and the whole house seemed empty and horrible and the dad's heart was broken during all that time. And he sees his brother and he knows they will never be apart again. And his heart is filled with love. And he's so glad his brother didn't get the shattered pot treatment like he deserved, and he's never been more proud of his father. That's, that's how this story ends. And he celebrates, and he walks into the party, and he laughs harder than all the other guests, and he cries harder than all the other guests, and, and he sings louder and dances crazier. And when he sees his brother, nobody cries harder when he holds him. How does this story end? How does it end for you and me? For you younger brothers, I want to be clear, you can come back home to God. You can come home to God no matter what distant country you've been to, where you've wandered, no matter where you've, where you've gone or what you've done. According to the Father, the pieces can be put back together. Nothing is so shattered they can't be put back. And you don't have to get yourself right to do it. So I hope if that's you today, you would. And if you're like me, and there's a little bit of older brotherism in you, a little bit of resentment, and a little bit of working too hard for it, a little bit blindness, the party is not just for the younger brother. The party is for both brothers. The party is, is what the father has thrown because the father loves all his children. Is there anybody you've written off in your life? Someone who you thought was gone and could never make it back, and even if they did make it back, you secretly, if you had to be really honest, maybe don't hope for the best for them. And Christmas is a time when you can come home, but it's also a time you can come in from the field and join the celebration. That is why Advent is such an important time. It's important that we have this season of preparation 
before we celebrate Christmas. Now, why does this make a good Christmas story? Because God's the one who leaves the light on for us, right? He leaves the light on. God isn't the one who begrudgingly will let you come back as long as you, you know, know your place and act like a servant. That's not our God. God is the one who leaves the 99. He's the one who runs out of the house, runs down the road, who runs across the universe to come to, to welcome us home, to rescue us. And the, the arrival of, of the baby Jesus is, is an offer to come home in every sense of the word. His birth, his death, his resurrection, that offers the ultimate chance, ultimate second chance to, to come home. This is why, to me, the, the parable of the prodigal son ought to take its rightful place as a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story in my book. But here's where I want to challenge us today. Whether you identify with the younger brother and all his selfishness and foolishness, or you identify with the older brother, keeping score and looking down on those who don't play by the rules, and yes, there's a little bit of both in both of us, and all of us, right? But whichever character you are this week... Here's what's important. There's only one hero in this story. And that's the father. There's only one hero. The patient one. The hopeful one. The one ruled by love over justice. He's ruled by humility over dignity. The word prodigal is, is a word that actually means wasteful. And I'm not the first to point out a better title for this story would be the prodigal father, right? Because the younger son isn't the only wasteful one. Prodigal means wasteful, and the father is the one who lavishes his wealth, who lavishes his love, his mercy, almost wastefully on us. And, and so this is, this is the father in the story. And yes, the figure represents God, our father, but it also offers us as people who follow Jesus, it offers us a model for us how to grow into ourselves. Um, the great writer Henry Nouwen said in his amazing book, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Father, uh, Prodigal Son, he said, our, our progress as Christians requires that we eventually grow into the role of the father. And that's an important lesson in this story. Yes, it's good that we, you know, younger sons, that we come home, we come to our senses and come home. But that's not where we stop. It's good as older brothers to get over ourselves and come into the party, but that's not where we stop. We want to grow into the role of the father here. He said, uh, Henry Nouwen said this, to become like the father whose only authority is compassion, I have to shed countless tears and so, be prepare, and so prepare my heart to receive anyone, whatever their journey has been, and forgive them from that heart. To become like the father what does Luke tell us? Jesus tells us in the book of Luke, be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good portion packed down, firmly shaken and overflowing will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Pastor Albert mentioned that scripture 
earlier, and it has and it can apply to our giving, but it also what is he primarily talking about here? He's talking about grace, compassion, undeserved forgiveness, mercy. Now, all of this requires that we embrace the number one objective of the Father. And what's that objective? To help people find their way home. Not to see people get what they deserve. It's to help people find their way home. He wants to bring the younger one inside. He wants to bring the older one inside. Right? So how do we do that? How do we become less like either of these two sons and become more like the father. We look past our own comfort. And that means even looking past our own, the, the friends and family that we naturally love to be with, right? We've all got those people that are easy to love. But that those, being with those people really don't make us more into Jesus. Sometimes it's being with the people who are harder to love. We move across our universe like Jesus did, and make ourselves vulnerable to people who are hard to love, people who may not love us back. They might love you back, but really, being loved back is not the point of why we're told to go out into all the world. We're not told to go out into all the world so people will like you. They might not. It's about becoming the love of God to others, reflecting his light to the world so that they can find their way home. That's the goal of the Father. so they can experience God's love for themselves. In the Father's role, when we're walking in that role, we also, we give the gift of attention. In the parable, the Father saw the Son coming from a long distance. Why? Because he was looking for him. He was was looking for him. He wasn't just wrapped up in his own business. He didn't just write off the boy as a lost cause. He always believed and always expected him to come home. So he gave the gift of his attention. We can have that same attitude to those who are far from God, those we're praying for, right? People in your family that you've been praying for all their lives to come home. Give them the gift of attention. And notice too, when the older son wasn't at the party, the father didn't just go, eh, he had his chance. No, the father noticed, hey, my other boy's not here. And he, let, he left the celebration to go heal the wounds of his, of his older boy, the loyal son. He needed his wounds healed too. And he didn't go out there and rebuke him. You notice that? He didn't really give him a big rebuke for being out there and having a bad attitude because God understands something. He understands that sin wounds us. We're wounded by our sin. We're wounded. And whether it's the sin of rebellion of the, of the younger kid, or the sin of self-righteousness. God is a healer, and he calls us to be healers to those who are broken. That's our calling, to heal the broken. And we don't get to pick and choose. Well, we want to heal these people, because they went off and did this, but now they're sorry. Now we're also called to heal the ones with the bad attitude, who need healing, Right? Help people find their way home. So let me conclude with this challenge. Advent is about preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. It's a, it's a season of preparation. That means examining your heart to be ready 
for the greatest act of generosity this world has ever seen. Are you ready for it? And we all think, yeah, we're ready. What's, what, why do I, I don't need to prepare myself for Christmas. Bring it on. Unless you're an older brother and you need to get prepared for an act of generosity that's going to rub you the wrong way. We talk about the cross as being the demonstration of Jesus' love, and it, compl- it totally is. No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life. Jesus died on the cross for you and me, an incredible sign of love. We know that. But as, as I hope we got a glimpse of last week in our little holy astronomy lesson, the fact that he, in his greatness, even crossed the universe and came to be born on this tiny little speck of dust planet in the outer arm of just one of the 200 trillion galaxies that he made, that is almost beyond belief. It's beyond belief. That was the first unbelievable act of love just coming, right? We say he laid down his life for us, but he laid down his life as soon as he left heaven to come be born in the dirt of a manger. He laid down his life. This God doesn't just receive us back. He hangs a light in the window. He watches for us every day. And this God runs out to meet us and brings us home. And when we're wounded and when we're moody and we're self-righteous, he lights the way home for that brother too. And we have to be prepared to accept that kind of generosity. And, and, And as the younger brother, we have to come to our senses and we have to admit that we need him. But as the older brother, we have to be prepared for God to show generosity to people you might not deem worthy. Both brothers need forgiveness. Both brothers. So we can't celebrate Christmas without preparing our hearts with the right attitude to receive his love. This God is reconciling humanity to himself. And the birth of Jesus speaks of hope and forgiveness, and it is a hope and forgiveness that we are commanded to extend. We are commanded to extend hope and forgiveness because we are also forgiven. We are forgiven, and we remind ourselves of that every day. I am forgiven. I am forgiven, and I needed forgiving, right? While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So, if you have a chance this holiday season, you come across family, you come across friends, maybe, you have a chance to give this great gift of forgiveness, of reconciliation. Do it. Reach out. Do they deserve it? No, neither did you. Just do it. Make the offer. Don't wait for the other person. Go out on the porch. Heal their hurts. Do it in the name of Jesus, who is the reconciler, the redeemer, the maker of all things new, the reason for this season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, Lord, you are a genius. You tell this story, and I see myself in both sons. I've been the younger son, Lord. You know, I've spat in the face of those who loved me, including you. I've bolted out the back door for some warped idea of freedom. And I have found, Lord, 
that there is no life outside of the freedom only you offer. No matter what distant country that we've wandered to, you never stop loving. You never stop waiting. You never stop watching the horizon for your child to come home. And you took that first move 2,000 years ago, coming across the universe to become the light of the world, to show us the way home. And for those of us who are here today, Lord, who are far from you, but I pray they're feeling that tug of love in their hearts, Lord, your Holy Spirit. Help us to root out resentment, heal our blindness, heal our wounds. Reveal to us your forgiveness. Because God... Lord knows I'm also like an older brother too many times. Forgive our bitterness, our self-righteousness. Forgive the hurts that some of us feel when we don't understand your ways. Help us to trust you. Help us to come inside the celebration, to come inside, partake of your generosity, partake of your love. May your Holy Spirit move among us at this church. Mold us more into the image of your son every day. May we be compassionate as you, Father, are compassionate. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. If there's anything you need prayer about before you leave, don't don't go without letting these wonderful people pray with you. Whatever it is, whatever's going on in your life, whether it's something financial or maybe your health or an emotional need or something happening that you just, you need somebody to walk through that with you in faith, they're ready to do that. These are prayer warriors. And if you're ready to meet Jesus today for the first time, just come let them know. They'll help you take that next step. They would love to do that with you. All right? You guys have a wonderful week. Praise the Lord. May you go forth and walk in grace and mercy and compassion even as your Father is compassionate. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.